Good morning. Me and Debbie watched a film the other night. It's called Midnight in Paris. It's a Woody Allen film, but don't let that put you off. Uh, it stars Owen Wilson, and Wilson plays a writer who is on a holiday in Paris with his fiance and her parents, who frankly, they're not the nicest people in the world. Actually, there's a bit of friction in the relationship. You can see that they're not really right for each other, and she's actually got her eyes on another man. Anyway, Wilson's character is desperate to go back to a different age. He's passionate about 1920s Paris, a time of what he refers to as the golden age, when the arts were booming. You have people like Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, Pablo Picasso, and Salvatore Dali were all living in Paris at this time and producing some of their greatest work. And as a writer, Wilson's like, I wanna be back then. I wanna be with those people. Well, amazingly, on this holiday, every night at midnight, Wilson actually travels back in time to the 1920s and he meets all of these heroes. He has this amazing experience, uh, which his girlfriend, his fiance, frankly, isn't interested in. And he meets a girl in back in the 1920s, a girl called Adriana, who he falls in love with. He's captivated by this woman and she is really captivated by him. And so he decides, actually, he wants to stay in the golden age of 1920. But there's a problem. Adriana herself longs to live in a completely different era. She longs to live in the 1870s in Paris. She sees that as the golden age, the, the age of the La Belle Époque. If you know your French, I don't, but apparently that was a famous uh, and transformational time in Paris. And actually having decided that he wants to stay back in 1920 with her, they then get transported back to 1870 and they meet some of the people who were famous at that time, the likes of um, Toulouse-Lautrec and Paul Cézanne. And as they speak to them in the 1870s, they find that they, Lautrec and, and Cézanne, are longing for a different time altogether themselves. They want to live back in Renaissance France. They want to live back in that time. Well, anyway, Adriana decides that she wants to stay in 1870 and live there. But Owen Wilson's character uh, realises what's happening and he tries to persuade her. He says this, Adriana, if you stay here and this becomes your present, then pretty soon you're going to start imagining another time was really your golden age. That's what the present is. It's a little unsatisfying because life is a little unsatisfying. That's a line in the film that really speaks, I think, of a key part of the human condition. Satisfaction. The fulfilment of a person's wishes or, the, or their expectations or needs and the pleasure that comes from this. Satisfaction is actually very hard to find on this earth. No matter how much we accumulate, what we achieve, what we get to do in life, to some extent people always seem to be looking for more. It struck home to me again when I was watching a documentary about English cricket called The Edge. It's a great, uh, if you like your sport, you like your cricket, it's on Amazon Prime, I recommend it. Download it, get yourself a Smith Down Balty, have a night in with a curry and watch The Edge. It's brilliant. It's the story of England's quest to become the number one ranked test cricket team in the world. It was a relentless three-year pursuit of their prize and they actually achieved it ahead of schedule. But a captain of the team, Andrew Strauss, reveals in the documentary that in the very moment that he's lifting the trophy to say that they're number one in the world he had this thing going through his head this thought that said well this is a bit of an anticlimax. is this it all that effort that they put in this grueling schedule of three years of hard work and dedication actually it wasn't worth it in fact a lot of players in the team shortly after that began to unravel mentally there was a huge problem of mental health of breakdown in the team they suffered 
for their work. The team ended up being ripped apart and falling to bits. They achieved their goal, but not satisfaction. Life got worse for them. We're going to be looking today at another amazing encounter with Jesus. An encounter which I think is just so rich and that really links with this theme of satisfaction. We sent out in advance of this talk a clip from the excellent drama series, The Chosen, which depicts this scene. Uh, if, you, if you've got the time to watch it, it's on, it's on our Facebook page. We sent out in an email as well on YouTube. It's eight minutes long. Do give it a watch. It's a really good introduction to this chapter. But we're going to read it now. It's found in the book of John, the Gospel of John, uh, in chapter four, and it's verses one to 30. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one you are speaking to, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. This is a really 
interesting, fascinating encounter. Jesus is speaking to this woman from Samaritan, and we need to, some, from Samaria, and we need to understand the significance of this. Jesus was a Jew, and Jews did not get on well with Samaritans. When Israel was a united kingdom under Kings David and Solomon, Samaria was part of the Northern Kingdom, but it, the kingdom then split, and the Jews and the Samaritans went very separate ways. Samaria, in fact, became overrun with people from other cultures, foreigners who intermarried with the Samaritans and brought their own religious practices and gods and idols, which were offensive to the Jews. The Jews started to regard the Samaritans as unclean, as unholy, impure. Even though the Samaritans shared a lot in common with the Jews, including reverence for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, in fact, the first five books of our Bible, our Old Testament today, you know, they didn't then treat the rest of the scriptures with any sort of respect. They didn't, they didn't see the prophets like Isaiah and the Psalms as holy texts. They did revere Jacob, uh, one of Israel's patriarchs. And in this encounter, we see it in taking place at Jacob's well, which was supposed to be the well that Jacob dug in Genesis 33. That was hugely, for the, hugely significant for the Samaritans to have that in their land. But their worship practices were very different. Jews, of course, centered their worship around that holy place of the temple in Jerusalem, the place where they believed God dwelt. But for Samaritans, the holy place was Mount Gerizim, a mountain which was in sight of the Jacob's well where this encounter takes place. That was their holy place. That was the place that Moses instructed blessings to be called out on the promised land. It was a place where the Samaritans built their own temple to worship there. That was the place for them where God dwelt, the heart of worship. The relationship between the Jews and Samaritans became very, very frosty indeed, and it got much worse. In 128 BC, when a Jewish king called John Hyacanus attacked the Samaritans and he destroyed their holy place, the temple on Mount Gerizim. Now there's just pure hatred between the two, the Jews and the Samaritans. So for Jesus to speak to a woman, that in itself was culturally uh, abnormal to speak for a, a man especially a teacher to speak alone to a woman in the middle of nowhere but to speak to a Samaritan woman as a Jew and then to ask her for a drink that was crazy breaking all sorts of conventions and barriers don't forget Jews saw Samaritans as unclean and yet Jesus is asking for a drink from this woman but you see Jesus liked to do that didn't he, he liked to break norms and conventions we'll see it throughout the series we saw it two weeks ago when we looked at the story of Jesus healing the leper when he dignified him by touching him and no one else in society would touch the guy he meets a cultural enemy in this story and actually not just a cultural enemy but a woman who is so unclean and sinful and she's disreputable that's why she's visiting the well alone in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, rather than in the cool of the morning when the other women from Samaria would go and fetch water. This woman is outcast. This woman is particularly unclean because of the way she's lived her life, as we'll discover a little bit later, due to the choices that she's made in her life. And yet Jesus entrusts her with the most important information that anyone's ever heard, that the Messiah is here and he is him. Somehow, through a conversation about something really simple, like a glass of water on a hot day, Jesus teaches this woman and us some remarkable things about satisfaction. The first thing he teaches this woman about satisfaction is that we will not find true satisfaction in worldly things. Things like possessions and relationships. 
through the conversation, we see Jesus underlining for us what Owen Wilson realised in Midnight in Paris. It's impossible to find true, complete, forever satisfaction in the things of this world, in the here and now. Life is, frankly, a little bit unsatisfying. The routine of coming to this well to get water, to drink and wash and cook shows us this. The water would be collected and used and then it was run out. Satisfaction was momentary, more water would always be needed. Even Jesus, fully God and yet fully human, understood this cycle. He knew the cycle of the human body, that it would get tired and thirsty. We see it in this passage, he arrives at the well tired and thirsty, needing refreshment. He asked for a drink, but if he got the drink, he knows that he'd only need another one a few hours later when he got thirsty again. How often do we focus on something that we really feel that we need or we want only to eventually get it and then simply find that we start being dissatisfied again and want something more? There was an article in The Guardian in 2017 which talked about this as the fleeting nature of happiness. It talked about something called the hedonic uh, treadmill. Hedonism from the, um, uh, is the, the pursuit of pleasure. And it talks about this, listen to what the article says. Emotion researchers has lo- have long talked about something called the hedonic treadmill. We work very hard to reach a goal, anticipating the happiness it will bring. Unfortunately, after a brief fix, we quickly slide back to our baseline, our ordinary way of being, and we start chasing the next thing we believe will almost certainly and finally make us happy. Does that sound familiar at all? It does to me. That feeling of maybe slogging away on our own hedonic treadmill, trying to achieve the next thing and gain the next thing, only to find that we just start the process all over again. It's like that with all sorts of things, like possessions, cars, phones, laptops, clothes. How often do we get something shiny, new, better, only to find that we then want the next one? Or even our houses, like me and our dad, we're, we're looking at extending our property at the moment. And I'm just acutely aware of the temptation just to see that as like this panacea of like, when we get that extension, everything will be all right. We won't want anything else. When I know deep down, as soon as we finish that project, we'll probably start wanting something else. The hedonic treadmill goes on and on. Jesus in this passage uses an ice-breaking word of knowledge. He uses the Holy Spirit gift in him. To, to just call something out of the woman and help her to realise the folly of her ways. He points to the state of perpetual dissatisfaction in this woman's life. And for this woman, it's through relationships. He has a direct and specific word where he says in verses 16 to 18, he says, look, the reason you've come to this well alone is because you know, the shame in your life that has caused you to come here on your own is because you've been married five times and you're now living with a sixth man. This woman has desperately sought satisfaction in romance, in men, and she's been left wanting. She's visited the well of romance six times now, and she's kept finding she's had to return again and again to try and refill when the satisfaction that was promised has proved only to temporarily quench her thirst for satisfaction. It won't work. If we're looking for satisfaction in the things of this world, in relationships, in possessions, we won't find it. That's the first thing that Jesus exposes in this conversation. The second thing they expose in this conversation is something that would have been even more controversial at the time. It's the fact that we won't find satisfaction in religion, in rituals and traditions. You might find that odd that I'm saying this. I'm a church pastor and I'm standing there saying you won't find satisfaction in religion. But I really believe it. In, if we try and find satisfaction in rituals and traditions, we won't find it. Verses 21 to 24, he speaks to the woman about the arguments that we mentioned earlier between the Jews and the Samaritans about where is the holy place? Is it the temple in Jerusalem or the mountain in Samaria? 
And Jesus says, he delivers this bombshell, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's a bombshell. Like how could the worship of God not be about the temple or not be about the mountain? The Jews and the Samaritans, Samaritans didn't understand anything else. They were core, they were central, they were vital to worship. The only places you could find God's, um, God's presence, depending on which side of the fence you were on, was either the temple on Mount Gerizim or the temple in Jerusalem. There was nowhere else you'd find God. But Jesus exposes them for what they are. They're just geographical locations. Yes, they've got significance to some extent, but if you base your worship of God purely on geography and sacred spaces, you're gonna miss out. He says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, when you over-emphasize temples and mountains and altars and idols, you reduce God to being incontainable. You reduce him to being controllable, restrictable to a single place and time. But God's not like that. He's spirit. He's everywhere, he's uncontainable, he's indescribable, he's unfathomable, immeasurable. He wants to be in every part of our lives. He's not someone who's meant to just be stuck in a place that we visit from time to time, on a Sunday maybe. We're not supposed to have God in a box and just take him out when we need him. If we're searching for God in religion and tradition and ritual, we're gonna be unsatisfied. So Jesus exposes these two things. You're not gonna find satisfaction in things of the world and you're not gonna find satisfaction in religious observance. Here's the difference. Jesus teaches this woman about living water. He doesn't teach it, any of this to shame the woman. It doesn't sh teach any of this to condemn her. It doesn't tell her about her five husbands to make her feel awful. He does it so that he can make her an offer. He exposes the flaw in her quest for satisfaction because he knows he can offer her something more, something better, something different, something that will absolutely satisfy her. Something that the earthy things can never reach. He offers living water. He says in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That is huge news, but also very confusing. What does Jesus mean, living water? To understand, we need to read a bit further on to John 7, where Jesus says this in front of a large crowd in a, in a synagogue. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then it says this, by this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When Jesus speaks of living waters, he speaks of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God sent to believers after Jesus was risen and ascended to heaven. In our series on the book of Acts, we looked in detail at the Holy Spirit, how he came at Pentecost and how he transformed the early church believers into just courageous people of God and, and they set in motion the amazing spread of the early church. Jesus, the Messiah, changed the nature of man's relationship with God forever. He was crucified to deal with the mess of humanity's sin and to receive God's punishment on our behalf and enabling us to have a relationship with God the Father once more. But that new relationship isn't to be based on rituals in temples and on mountains. It's a relationship that sees God's very presence, not confined to boxes in holy places, but placed inside the hearts of all who believe through the Holy Spirit. It's the end of religion. 
it's the end of ritual and, and worship uh, and, and, and traditional-based worship. It's the start of relationship. Jesus offers spirituality. He offers a living, breathing relationship with God that truly satisfies by the Spirit. A relationship that provides satisfaction not just on earth, but eternally. There's two quick things we need to know about this living water. Number one, this living water comes from a fountain that will never, ever run dry. Unlike the water in Jacob's well and the things that we crave for in our lives today, we have a fountain that will never run dry. Jesus is the fountain and the water is the Holy Spirit sourced from that fountain. Jesus is the victorious one whom death could not even destroy. An unstoppable source. There'll never be a shortage of living water ever. We don't have to fear running empty and being dissatisfied. There's always more of the spirit where, where he came from. And unlike Jacob's well in this story, we don't have to keep trekking tirelessly to fill up because it's in us already. Living water doesn't rely on our effort and our journey to fetch more. We don't achieve living water. We don't run out of it. We don't make it happen. We don't have to go to a special mountain or a temple to find it. It's not even about a church attendance, as important as that is, and as much as we love our Sunday mornings and we miss it like crazy meeting together. Even that isn't what it's about. We can be filled and we can have this living water flowing through us 24-7 every moment of the day and never be dissatisfied. We are filled and we're to go on being filled. The Bible tells us to keep being filled. There's no need to venture out in the heat of the day and fetch it ourselves. There's always more within us. We are constantly connected to God from within. Isn't that incredible? Living water is an amazing thing. The second thing about living water I just want to bring out is that it's a fountain that helps to bring forth fruit. Living water doesn't just quench our thirst. It doesn't just stop us from needing something. It actively causes things to happen, things to grow in us, things to change in us. It brings fruit. Think about a tree or a plant. When it's planted near a stream, near a great source of water, you'll find that tree will just go on year after year producing amazing fruit because it's got a constant source of nourishment. It's the same for us with living water. As we have this constant source of, of water within us, it brings fruit in us. The Bible tells us about the fruits of the Spirit, which will grow as a result of being full of God's living water. It tells us about love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. Things, in short, which are good for us and they're also good for those around us. As we are filled with living water, as we grow, as the fruit comes, we are a blessing to those around us. That's the thing about living water. It doesn't just quench your thirst, it produces fruit in us. It's an amazing, amazing thing. I want to finish this morning by telling you something really important. This living water that Jesus talked about on a mountainside in Samaria 2,000 years ago, it is available now as it was then. It was available to the Samaritan woman then and it's available to us right now. And I think we live in a society which is perhaps more dissatisfied and unfulfilled as it ever has been. I wonder this morning, can you identify with that feeling of dissatisfaction, that feeling of a thirst that never quenches, of constantly striving for more, only to find that when you get what you wanted, you want more again? I really, really want to introduce you this morning again to the Lord Jesus. 
As this Samaritan woman says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. The God who knows you intimately. He knows you inside out. He planned you way before time. He knows everything about you. He sees you. He knows every thought, every deed, every word you've ever said and spoken and done. He knows everything about you. And yet, even knowing the worst parts of you, the darkest depths of you, he offers you his living water. He died for you so that you could have a relationship with him. He knew this woman had had five husbands and was onto a sixth man. He knew that she was sinful and that she'd made a mess of things. And yet he doesn't condemn her and judge her. He gives her an offer of living water. Come and have that thirst, that dissatisfaction truly dealt with. That is available to you right now, right here today. It's not a fleeting, one-off moment of joy that then disappears and fades. It's a permanent, everlasting source of living water in your life. The joy of knowing your sins are forgiven, your soul is freed, and your everlasting destiny, your destination is secure in Him. If you're a Christian this morning, maybe you've been just lapsing into feeling frustrated and dissatisfied again. That's a sure sign that you just need to remember that that fountain of Jesus is in you, that living water is flowing. You maybe have just walked away from the stream a little bit. Maybe you just need to dip your roots back in. Maybe you just need to spend some time splashing about in that living water again. Reconnect with him. He's in you. The spirit is in you. You don't need to go far to find it. You just need to pay some attention. You just need to make some space for that water to flow in again. If you're a non-Christian this morning, if you don't know Jesus this morning, I invite you, it's time to allow Jesus in. There's an amazing painting by Holman Hunt. It's a, it's a painting of Jesus standing outside a door of a garden. There's no handle on the door outside. It has to be open from within. And it, it speaks to a verse in Revelation where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever will let me in, I'll, I will come into their life. Maybe this morning is the time to open up that door from inside, to allow Jesus into your heart, to allow him to pour out his living water in your soul and to be forever, forever satisfied in him. Let me just pray as we finish. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this amazing encounter with this woman. We thank you for what it means for us. We thank you for your promise of living water. Lord, thank you that you, you offer to pour that out in our lives. Even though we are far from you at times, Lord, you pour it out in us. Lord, I pray for anyone this morning who doesn't know you, Lord. I pray that you will enter their heart and you'll provide living water for them for the very first time. And for those who may be just feeling thirsty right now, Lord, will you remind them of the fountain of living water that was, is within them? Lord, will you quench that thirst now and forever in your name? Amen.